don't talk too much. So talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John. And of course, before we get into it, I've got to tell you about the best artisan soda in the entire world. That's Yacht Club Soda. Go to yachtclubsoda.com right now and check out all the amazing flavors they have. They have blue raspberry, orange cream, regular cream. They've got strawberry, grape, pineapple, grapefruit. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, you will not be disappointed. And if you go to yachtclubsoda.com right now, uh, in, in place an order, you can mix, you can match, you, you can get whatever flavors you want. John Scambato over at Yacht Club Soda will send it to you as long as you live in the United States. So go right now, order some soda. You will not be disappointed. They use real cane sugar in this soda. None of that high fructose corn syrup crap. It comes in glass bottles. It's it's the best soda you'll ever have. Trust me. Go to yachtclubsoda.com right now and order some for yourself. Uh, also, of course, I, like as I've been saying, I've got some new pizza art coming out uh, pretty regularly now. So please don't forget to go to at Eric John Art on Twitter or at Eric John Pizza Art on Instagram and uh, keep an eye out for all the new pizza art that's coming out, including new NFTs. In 2024, I'm going to be releasing some on National Pizza Day. That's February 9th, 2024. Um, and of course, also, don't don't forget to go over to YouTube and check out the film that Marcus Ritchie made about me and my pizza art called The Art of Pizza. Um, it, it's, it's He did such a great job with it, and uh, I'm so proud of it. Uh, so please go over to YouTube, The Art of Pizza. Uh, just type that in. You'll find it. Uh, and check that out too. It's about 15 minutes long. It's not too long. It's a short documentary, um, but it's a lot of fun. Okay, on the show today, super excited to talk to this guy, uh, Brian Mulhern, who I first became aware of as a radio host here in the state of Rhode Island on uh, 94HJY, which is a, uh, a classic rock station, and then on Cat Country 98.1. Um, uh, when I, you know, it's, it's amazing. I started loving classic rock of course as a younger person as a kid I loved classic rock and then i got really into country and so i got to kind of follow brian from station to station uh as my musical tastes changed uh but brian also uh is is been a very prolific comedy writer uh and was a a, a good friend of phil hartman's uh who is one of my just comedy idols I, I, in terms of comedy there's nobody really to me who is funnier or more talented uh, than Phil. And uh, so getting to talk to Brian about Phil uh, and what kind of guy he was and some of his uh, stories and experiences with Phil uh, is a real, real treat. Um, and uh, I know there was a book written about Phil's life that has been uh, optioned uh, into a movie. I know Brian's uh, worked on the screenplay uh, for that film. And I believe the screenplay is done. Um, so they're just waiting for the next sort of the next steps in that, uh, in that story and that development process. Um, certainly a movie I would love to see, um, cause you know, Phil, um, and of course in the course of this interview, um, uh, I, I can't wait to learn more things about Phil from Brian, um, and also hear more about his career and, um, and some of the things he's doing today. So I'm gonna let Brian tell us all about it. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Eric, thanks so much for having me. 
So the, the first thing I, I was wondering is, um, you know, how, how does someone get into comedy writing? Because obviously it's not like your typical job where, you know, you go to school for it necessarily or there's some sort of logical career path. Um, how, how did you get into that? I think it's two parts hard work and dumb luck to be totally honest with you. Actually, there is a third component, which is an acceptance of an immense amount of rejection and being okay with that because uh, there are very few people who don't run into that brick wall 90% of the time. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I was I was just watching some... Um, I've been sort of obsessively watching these old late show clips um, from, the, from the old uh, Letterman show. And uh, there was one where Jim Downey uh, was talking about who was who was the head writer on the show for a few years. And he was talking about a bit that he wrote um, that bombed so massively on air that like him and uh, one of the other writers went running uh, out of the stage back through the stage door because they were it was so horrible. And I remember thinking, man, if someone, you know, someone of Jim Downey's caliber can write a, a, a stinker. You know, uh, you know, it, it really is that really does put things in perspective and makes you realize that you do have to be able to handle rejection because not everything's going to be great. Um, now, were you writing comedy before you got into radio? Because that's how I that's how I knew you originally was from your work on uh, on local radio here in Rhode Island. Um, is it was that sort of was the comedy writing something that came out of being in media and being on radio or was it the other way around? Uh, it was the other way around. I was writing what I thought was comedy from a very young age. And obviously uh, there's a little bit of that that's born into you, but uh, you also have to hone it and work at it as Jim Downey will attest. And uh, you and I, it sounds like have gone down some pretty similar YouTube rabbit holes because I saw that <laughs> very interview and that very clip. And I am a Letterman nut. He was my biggest influence when I uh, first wanted to get into this. And uh, I, don't, I don't even remember that bit. And I remember a lot of them, which probably shows you how, how bad it was. But uh, now as from a young age, my brother and I used to write little plays and perform them for friends and uh, my dad had a Super 8 movie camera, old school, with no sound, and we would uh, shoot things with that. And then as we got older, they got a camcorder, and he and I, along with a friend of ours, Bob Letty, did this little thing called MLM. It was Mulhern Letty Mulhern, and it was a bunch of sketches that we mostly wrote, sometimes improvised. And we would shoot them and show them to our friends. And they got this cult following to the extent that every year we would put together an anniversary special, kind of a best of, and we would make tons of copies. And I think we did that for two, three years. And I'm horrified to say that there are probably still dozens of those circulating out there somewhere. Thank God nobody has VCRs anymore to be able to see it. But uh, I think that was when I really first started getting the bug. And when it went next level for me was I was really uh, into music from a young age as well, played guitar, wanted to be the next Eddie Van Halen uh, way back when. And um, when I realized that I was never going to be that good at it to be able to do that, 
Um, I went to college. I was undecided for a major. And for the first two years, I was flailing. And then a buddy of mine one day who was equally nuts about Letterman said, you know what would be a really cool job? Writing for David Letterman. And that hit me like it was a lightning bolt out of the sky. Because much like I never felt like I could ever, I could never be Eddie Van Halen. I could also never be David Letterman. I knew that. But could I be a guy sitting in a room with a bunch of other people, kicking ideas around, and then putting them into the hands of somebody who had that level of talent? I absolutely thought that I could. And thus began that journey for me. You know, I, I've had the same thought. Like, I, 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 being David Letterman doesn't actually sound like a whole lot of fun, but like being one of those guys in that room sounds, it sounds like the most fun in the world. Um, even though there's a, I'm sure a ton of pressure and it's extremely stressful. It just sounds like the place I would want to be if it was me. So I feel like we have that in common. Um, did you, so, one thing you mentioned is that you you've written a lot of jokes for, for late night as a freelance writer. Um, how does that process work exactly? Because obviously we know that these shows have teams of writers coming up with jokes. So how are people doing that freelance? How does that work? Well, this is an ever changing universe and I don't think you'll see too much of that kicking around these days uh, for me and everybody has a different path in terms of, how they get where they got. Um, I actually took a comedy writing class. I think I was about 17, 18 years old from the old learning connection. I don't know how old you are, or if you recall what that was, but it was taught by now Rhode Island Comedy Hall of Famer, Frank O'Donnell. And it was like this weekly thing on the Thursday night. And I'd go in and I was by far the youngest person there. But Frank saw something in me, and towards the end of the run of the class, he said, you know, you've got some potential here, and I don't usually tell people this, but Jay Leno, and this was, and this is how old I am, this was back in the days when Carson was hosting The Tonight Show, and Jay Leno was the permanent guest host fill-in. He said he will accept freelance jokes from people if he thinks they're any good, and he will pay you $50 per joke that he uses. Now, the dirty little secret was most people, if they got beyond that first brick wall, he would on average accept like one out of 100 jokes that you wrote. So there's the percentage of failure that I'm talking about. I mean, never mind being let into the kingdom. Once you're in, you're going to get 99 no's on average. So um, I wrote 10 jokes, had my dad sneak into work. The statute of limitations is past us now, so I can reveal that he was illegally faxing these jokes to Burbank, <laughs> California, NBC. And one night, about 11.40 during the week, my phone rings. I'm still living with my parents. Again, I'm maybe at this point, 19 or something like that. And uh, I go diving for the phone because I know they're going to be really upset that I'm getting a call this late. And I say, hello. And I hear, is this Brian? And I said, yeah. Hey, it's Jay Leno. And I was like, holy mother of God, you got to be kidding me. He asked me what I was doing. And I, I told him I was doing whatever it was that I was doing. He's like, oh, you're not watching The Tonight Show? And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> <Wrong> <laughs> that would have been a good answer, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, he said that he liked my stuff and he thought I had potentially asked me if I'd ever considered doing stand-up. And he told me he was going to send me a freelance contract. And given your knowledge of the late night scene back in the day, that contract was sent to me by Helen Kushnick. And if you want to know a little bit more about her, you can read the book, The Late Shift, or see the cheesy HBO movie that was. Oh, yeah. That movie is uh, legendary. (laughs) That movie is legendary. Oh, yeah. yeah. Letterman was not a fan. You said it's not easy being Letterman. Letterman is never having a good time in general. Boy, did that movie make him upset. But uh, yeah, so they sent me the contract. I signed it. I think I got a joke on around my 75th joke, and I considered that like a moral victory. And especially at that young age, I think about it now, how insane that was. But that was the first door that got kicked open for me. And when I talk about, you know, you work hard, and I did, but when you talk about the dumb luck, I just so happened to take that class. Frank O'Donnell just so happened to see something in me. I just so happened to take that advice and follow through on it. And the next thing I know, I'm not even 20 years old and I'm already writing for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. So Do that you was remember what that joke me. was? This is such a classic story and it goes back to what Jay said when he asked me what I was doing, I would record the show every night. You know, I was in college at the time and I had to get up early sometimes. And one night I didn't record it. And then I got the check in the mail and I never saw what the joke was. And I was so upset. I called over to NBC Burbank and this poor woman, I had her on the phone for like half an hour just saying, please, you don't understand. This is the first joke I ever got on. And she was like, was it this one? Was it this one? Like going through a week's worth of shows. And finally, I just put her out of my misery. So the answer to that question is, I have no idea what the first joke was. And honestly, the way things go, I'm probably glad that I don't because I'm sure it would create a very awkward moment for your podcast. I'd be cringing over it. You'd be cringing <laughs> over it. So the universe stepped in and said, no, Brian. You don't need to know. Well, it's like it's like when I look back at like a lot of my my first like my very earliest like works of pizza art. I you know it's like at the time, you know, I thought they were the greatest thing ever, and then I you know I look I look back at them now and I'm just you know kind of like what 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 is that exactly? You know, I'm not exactly jumping up and down over it. Um, have you? I'm sure they now, were all delicious though. They all have oh, well, that in common. The taste doesn't change. That's true. They they all taste good regardless of how good they look. Um, now, uh, people might not know this, but Jay Leno uh, has a residence here in the state of Rhode Island. Um, have you had a mm-hmm. chance to see him ev- in your many travels uh, since he's been around? My contact with Jay was basically limited to that phone call and him looking over my jokes. And from there, <laughs> our paths never really crossed again because, I mean, I was faxing the jokes from greenville rhode island and uh a couple of years ago my brother who's still working in local radio uh interviewed jay and and mentioned the whole thing to him and and i got the sense that jay had no recollection whatsoever as to who i was so uh if i ever ran into him you know if i'm down in the newport area where he's uh 
got his townhouse or whatever it is, <laughs> uh, I would I probably go up to him and, and thank him at the very least. But no, I've I have not seen Jay at all or or had a conversation with him since I was 19. Well, I think, you know, it's not surprising that he wouldn't necessarily remember, but I think he would appreciate it. It's a pretty funny story. I think he might, you know, he might appreciate oh, yeah, the, the yeah, whole story he there. He's, the um, funniest part of the story is that I omitted, but I do tell from time to time. My brother was with me when the call came in and he was like, who is it? And I said, it's Jay Leno. And all of a sudden he went running out of the room. And when Jay is in the middle of hammering out the contractual details with me, suddenly I hear another phone pick up from the basement and my brother say, hi, Jay. And Jay was like completely taken aback and it brought everything to a screeching halt and nearly destroyed everything for me. And uh, thank Christ, Leno allowed for that little interruption and sent me the contract because my brother came upstairs and he said to me, dude, how many times am I going to get a chance to say hi to Jay Leno? And you want to talk about uh, a sibling pounding that <laughs> nearly transpired. And believe me, there was many of those back in those days. But uh, I think Jay would probably get a kick out of that part of the story and might even remember that. That's hysterical. That's hysterical. Um, you know, you mentioned that that he that he mentioned stand up comedy. And, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of stand up comedy. Um, but, you know, in, in most late night hosts come from stand-up um you know with, with conan being a, an exception um it, but they're very sketch heavy these shows are very sketch heavy and i've also been a huge fan of saturday night live uh and shows like that my entire life too and i feel like the two kind of ebb and flow in popularity like a lot of times when uh when sketch comedy is kind of at its heights stand-up tends to maybe be a little bit lower and they kind of go back and forth um, do you do you have a favorite between sketch comedy and and stand up comedy? In terms of watching it, writing it, performing it, what? Because I probably have different answers for all of those. Uh, let's say it, uh, watching it just as a fan. As a fan, I would probably say I have the biggest appreciation for sketch comedy. Um, and it's weird because I, like you said, it ebbs and flows in terms of how good or how bad it is from time to time. And SNL is the perfect example of that. The roller coaster of, all right, who's on the writing staff? Who's in the cast? Uh, what's going on in the world at the time? So many things have to come together in such a perfect storm way. And for me, like the monologue stuff, um, I don't want to say that I'm tired of it, um, but I, I just kind of feel like it, it doesn't it, it doesn't generate the laughs for me that a really well executed sketch can. And I, I think part of that too is uh, being a part of of how the sausage is made. And th there's this guy that I met recently who owns his own brewery, and I asked him. I said, "The most fascinating question I have for you is." can you go somewhere and drink a beer and just enjoy it? Or are you sitting there trying to figure out what the ingredients are, judging it, like just being overly analytical to the point that you can no longer just sit back and enjoy a beer? And he said, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of at that point where 
it's really difficult. And he said, the thing that I hate about it is I got into this because I love beer so much. But when it becomes a job to you to some degree, that doesn't mean that you still don't hold the same passion for it. But I think it gets to be a little bit more difficult to truly appreciate it because every single joke or even any movie, ask my wife, she hates watching movies with me because I have the writer's brain and I can't even tell you how many of them I've ruined like a third of the way into it. Cause I'm like, here's the plot twist. Like <laughs> I'm just trying to constantly figure out how they're trying to manipulate you and what they're trying to do. So I think a good sketch will surprise me more often than a really good monologue joke will. How's that for a long answer? No, that's a great answer. And, and that makes perfect sense. Actually, I totally agree with you. And it's funny what you said about, you know, I do the same thing when I watch movies. I, I see I, I feel like I see things coming a mile away because I'm such a huge movie buff. And uh, I do that to my wife all the time. Like uh, something will happen and I'll go, oh, and she'll say, like, what? I'm like, oh, that, this now I'll say what is going to happen. And she gets really angry with me because I just spoiled. You know, I'm usually right. I can so tell you, to this day. I'm still not living down ruining the first season of Only Murders in the Building for my wife like three episodes <laughs> when I'm like, that's the murderer. You know, I haven't and, seen uh, that. Um, but of course, uh, it's, it's got two of my favorite comedians of all time in it. Um, oh, God, it did you, you enjoy it? Oh, I love it. I love that series. And I love those guys. Huge influences. It's again, it's so funny when, you know, when when most people mention comedians, you know, who are your favorite comedians? You know, the people they're going to think of usually are, you know, they're going to start listing people like George Carlin and Richard Pryor and, uh, you know, and rightfully so. But then there's guys like, you know, uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, um, Chris Farley. Uh, and of course, my, you know, my my all time favorite comedian of all time uh, is Phil Hartman. I just think um, when I was watching SNL, at, at the youngest age I could possibly watch it uh, when, when Phil was still on the show and then going and renting the old, you know, compilations, uh, the SNL compilations that you get on VHS at the at the major video down the street. Um, and he was always my favorite part of every sketch he was in. I, I just I loved, um, you know, that sketch, um, uh, the Matt Foley sketch. Uh, to me, he's the funniest part of that sketch is, is, is him playing the dad and just it just cracks me up way more than Chris Farley did in that sketch. It was so funny. Um, and I know you were a, a, a good friend of Phil's and, a, and a, a writing partner of Phil's. And I'm just, I'm so curious and I have a million questions for you about Phil. Um, first of all, how, how did you, how did you come to working with Phil and how did you meet him? Well, that was also another dumb luck thing. And speaking a little bit further into what you just said, you hit on two things that I have experience in, and that is working with Phil Hartman and working at a major video. So if you have any questions about video rentals, uh, we can maybe save that for the second half hour. <laughs> sure. Um, in terms of how that happened for me, uh, you know, coming off of the Leno experience, and at some point he stopped accepting the freelance stuff, I think when he took over the show. Uh, one night in the fall of 93, I'm up watching Letterman on CBS and Phil just so happened to be a guest and it was his last season at Saturday Night Live. And so Dave was asking him, so what's next for you? And he said, well, I'm going to be starting 
my own primetime sketch variety show on NBC called The Phil Show. And I'm in the process of staffing up for writers as we speak. And he went on to explain what it was going to be. And it was essentially going to be a primetime version of Saturday Night Live revolving around a lot of the characters that Phil had done on that show and some other stuff that he had done when he was in the Groundlings. So just for the hell of it, I said to myself, I'm going to send him a packet of some of my stuff. And I would do that constantly. I can't even tell you, you know, this is going to sound like, boy, this kid just all he does is hit home runs. You know, Leno's calling him. Now he's sending a packet to Phil Hartman at 30 Rock. (laughs) And then two, three days later, by the way, a lot of what I sent was uh, some of the video stuff that I had done with MLM, with my brother and my friend, Bob Letty. And I had just started working in radio and I had written some on-air bits for that. Um, I was working at HJY at the time for Carolyn Fox. So uh, at the time I was working at a pharmacy as a pharmacy technician. And about three days later, I get a call there and it's both of my parents on two separate lines and they just said, wow. And then my brother jumped on the other line and said, hi, Jay. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, I said, uh, what's going on? And my dad said, somebody just called looking for you from Saturday Night Live. I think he said his name was Peter. And I asked my dad, I said, was it Phil Hartman? And he said, yeah, he wants you to call him at 30 Rock tomorrow. So you want to talk about a sleepless night because I have no idea what this phone call is going to be. It could be, hey, I read your stuff and uh, keep plugging and good luck. And I thought, well, that would be very kind. Or maybe he wanted to call me to tell me that he thought it sucked and that I should continue either my pharmacy career or go back to major video. (laughs) Or he would like it to the extent that we might have something here. So. I paced and paced and paced and I waited until the time I was told to call and I gave him a call and he couldn't have been sweeter or more complimentary. And he said, you wrote some of this with your brother, right? And I said, yeah. It's like, I want you guys to come to SNL next week and see how we do it here. Cause that's how I'm going to do it with my show. So the next thing I know, the Mulhern family is on their way to New York city. My brother and I, I was 23 at the time you know, walking into Studio 8H and there's Phil Hartman on the historic floor, uh, running lines with Sally Field playing Jesus. And she's playing a housewife who is praying to him too much. And uh, the, the gist of the joke was, hey, I, I really appreciate how devoted you are, but please don't let the souffle fall. It's not very high on my priority list. I've got a lot of people who have some pretty serious problems. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just sitting there laughing and he, he comes right off uh, the stage when he's done and uh, that conversation started. And, and it was a very interesting conversation. And it showed me for as easily as everything came to him, it showed me how his mind worked and how seriously he took every little thing. And he said, oh, that sketch. He said, you know, I'm constantly battling with the writers because they keep trying to make Jesus mean. And I just know how much Jesus means to so many people in this country. And I think I'd be doing them 
and this historical figure a disservice if I had him coming across as nasty. Like he was getting into the Jesus character that much. It, it was kind of what would Jesus do before there was a what would Jesus do thing. And, and so right away I was like, wow, this is this is way more than a good time for this guy. Uh, he takes this crap seriously. So he dragged us into his dressing room. My brother and I pitched him a bunch of ideas that we had written out and we got hired on the spot and the rest was history. So once again, on the dumb luck front, had I not been sitting in my living room watching that particular Letterman episode at that particular time, had I not had the balls to throw a packet together and send it off to 30 Rock, what would my life have been? I shudder to think. And believe me, it's been pretty cool. It hasn't been perfect, but I think it would have been a lot less interesting had I not been there for that moment. Well, you know, it's almost like, you know, you almost think like, there's no way I'm going to send this packet out and anyone's even going to read it. Like you just like, if I was thinking of doing something like that today, I wouldn't arrogance. I know (laughs) I would never think in a million years that that packet would come anywhere, even close to reaching Phil Hartman's eyes. Like, it's just the way that I would think that like, like this, you got to know somebody and there's some friend of a friend who, you know, um, is going to get a recommendation or et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's really amazing and obviously speaks to, you know, your talent as a comedy writer. Um, and of course, one of the most famous things about Phil that I've learned recently and just watching all of these tributes to him and, um, you know, of course, being just being so uh, obsessed with his talent and wanting to know more about how he worked is that he had this famous binder that he used to walk around with, right, with with all mm-hmm. of the sketches um, that he was going to be in that week and little tabs and different colored tabs about how, what he was going to do. Um, and it does. It is something that you hear about all of the greatest of the greats. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld being another one is is that they write, they write, they 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 write and they rewrite and they go over everything. And there's there's ten hours of preparation behind a five minute bit or performance. It's it's really that much that goes into it. Um, and and Phil is sort of legendary for that. Um, you also mentioned the Jesus thing, which also was something that surprised me about Phil is that I, it, someone had mentioned in one of the tributes I was watching that he. Uh, he was one of the only people, or he was the only person who was actually uh, uh, upset about the whole Sinead O'Connor uh, uh, debacle of of ripping up the uh, the Pope's photo because he 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 took that sort of thing very seriously, um, and so I thought that yeah, was religion also- meant something to him, and I I think that story I just told you about the Jesus thing speaks both to that and to the amount of preparation that you're talking about and how seriously he took his craft. And uh, I I can't remember if Victoria Jackson was on that cast when Sinead O'Connor did that because she was deeply religious to an extent that for many members of the cast, it it kind of made her an outcast. So I imagine she would have been upset too. But yeah, I did did hear uh, recently that story I think might've been on the Phil Hartman tribute fly on the wall podcast about how, yeah, that, that did affect him because he did have religion in his life from a very young age. And a little shout out to Victoria Jackson, who I I think is one of the underrated uh, female comedians in that show's history. Um, And, and and she's in one of my favorite bits. And so is a lot of people, which is the the famous Steve Martin cold open where he does the whole song, the whole musical number, which is just, 
oh, it's and there's a very funny part for Phil in that as well, where he talks about be, maybe being <laughs> yeah. himself. And and Steve Sell says, well, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> do that, Phil. <laughs> so funny. Um, well, so what? Okay, so talk about this show because I, um, the Phil show. Did this show ever materialize? Because I don't remember it. I remember him being on news radio, of course. Um, but mm-hmm. um, what ended up happening with this variety show? Because it sounds like something that I would have loved. I would have loved it too, believe you me, for many reasons. As a fan and as a participant, what ended up happening was, and this was my first real big showbiz lesson in heartbreak, because to me, at the age of 23, I had it made. I'm like, this is one of the most talented people in the world. I was an immense fan of his long before I became a friend. And I just thought, well, how is this not going to happen? Well, we worked on it for a year and uh, did a a lot of writing for it. And we staffed up a guy by the name of Joel Gallen, who remains a a friend of mine to this day and who I will bring up again in another capacity uh, involving Phil, uh, was brought on as the executive producer. And it just so happened that Joel was a URI graduate. So we kind of had the region in common and we've remained friends to this day. And and there was uh, discussions about who was going to be the head writer. And at one point <clears throat> he was talking about Kevin McDonald from kids in the hall. And I thought, Oh my God, if I could ever possibly work with him too, it was just, everything was coming up roses. And then friends happened. And there was also simultaneously speaking of Martin short, he was doing a sketch variety thing for NBC and got a little bit of a head start on us Jan Hooks was going to be in that show. So when Friends started doing really well, and you talk about the peaks and valleys of sketch variety, the network started getting nervous because they started thinking to themselves, well, sitcoms are hot right now, and maybe that's more the way that we should go with this. So they started meddling with what the creative team on Marty Short's show were doing And the first episode made it to air and it was an unmitigated disaster. A lot of people ask me all the time, how come you're not still in Hollywood? And my answer is for the most part, and there were some other extenuating circumstances, I got tired of non-comedy people making comedy decisions. You know this as well as anybody. How impossible is it to take something that Martin Short is doing and make it not be funny. (laughs) NBC discovered a way to do that. And when they saw the mess that they created, they freaked out, they pulled the plug on the Phil show, and then he got sent news radio's way. But that was after a year of some really hard, fun, and and long work. And, uh, you know, the, the best part about Christmas, as you know, is the anticipation of it happening. And then every time when it does happen, it's kind of a letdown. Well, I got the worst of both worlds. I got all the anticipation and then just the rug pulled out from under us. We were going to be out there within a week and we were going to move in with Phil uh, until we had found a place. And then he had to call and say, sorry, boys, it ain't happening. I mean, obviously uh, very disappointing 
Um, and I'm sure it was, I mean, it must've been extremely disappointing for Phil too, because, um, you know, I know, I just know how much he loved all those characters and, um, I'm sure it was something he really, really wanted to do. Of course he got to end up getting to do news radio, which, um, you know, by all accounts, seems like it was a pretty great place to work as well. Um, a great cast and great role for him. Um, did you, did you keep in contact with Phil through all that time? Did you continue to work with him? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and in what capacity? Well, let me first say something that speaks to the kind of person that Phil Hartman, I hate to use past tense with him, is. Um, when he would call to speak with either my brother or myself, since I was in my early 20s, I was still living at home and my mom would answer and he would talk to her for an hour and a half. <laughs> Just, you know, talking to her about how proud he was of us and what a great job she did raising us and asking questions about her and her personal life. So the day that Phil had to make the phone call to my brother and myself, we were obviously very upset. And I can't remember what we did. I didn't stay in the house. I left. And within an hour of that happening, Phil called to speak to my mom and he said, Barbara, I'm calling you as a parent because I know how heartbreaking this is for you just as much as it is for the boys. But I want to tell you, you have two talented, uh, talented kids there and don't worry, I'm going to continue to take care of them. And I just remember my mom telling me that story. And uh, the only thing she could say was you're a great man, Phil Hartman. And he was, he really and truly was. Um, in terms of the news radio experience, Warren Littlefield still wanted to hang on to Phil for NBC, thought that was the perfect project for him. Phil went off and did it. And in another remarkable turn of events, and it was just so weird to be this young age and have a front row seat to this kind of thing. Phil didn't have to try to be funny. There was an episode of Seinfeld where Jerry, am I being funny? And they're like, yeah, he's trying not to be funny, but he can't not be funny. And that and that was Phil. So he had all the talent in the world. And uh, one day he called me and I said, hey, things seem to be going well on news radio. He goes, yeah, um, I, yeah, I really like the team and, and the cast. He said, but it, there's just, there's so much talent on that show. And I just, I don't know that I'm pulling my weight. And uh, I, I don't necessarily know that this is good for me. And he talked about how his name was last in the credits. And I said, well, Phil, the two best places in the credits to be is either the first or the last. And <laughs> That's you know, right. This is, a true, this is a true ensemble show, much like Cheers was, much like the Mary Tyler Moore show, much like the original Bob Newhart show. And I said, that's what you guys have going on right now. And as these words are coming out of my mouth, I'm sitting there at the age of, I don't know, maybe 25, thinking to myself, if I have to talk Phil Hartman off of the comedic confidence ledge, what chance do I have in this industry <laughs> when somebody that talented, and, and that's how seriously he took it. And incidentally, that phone call really seemed to do him a world of good. It kind of perked him up. I even remember too, the first week of SNL without him, Michael McKeon took over Clinton 
And Phil called. He's like, do you think he did it better than I did? And I was like, oh, my God, dude, seriously, get into a therapist's office. <laughs> Why are you calling me? But what I really liked about it was it showed me, and a lot of people said this about Phil, and you mentioned that Steve Martin sketch, that it was very tough to get close to him or to really know him. Um, he respected me enough that he showed me who he was. He talked to me about his marital issues. When he was feeling insecure about something, he'd call me for a pep talk. We would constantly talk about comedy and he said one thing to me that I'll never forget. And if I die today, if I died the second that he said this, um, I'd wear it as a badge of honor for the rest of my life. And I think it was on that call, the news radio call, we were talking about how, you know, he had the nickname, the glue. That's what he was on SNL. And um, we started talking about some of the sketches that he was in and did. And I was, uh, I can't remember why it came up but I pulled out the line from the famous Sinatra group sketch. I've got chunks of guys like you in my stool. <laughs> and uh, Phil said to me, he goes, you know, Robert Smigel wrote that sketch. And he said, he is the single greatest comedy writer I've ever worked with in my life. And then he followed it up with, and you're the second best. And I will take that compliment every day of the week. I mean, Robert Smigel, as you know, in the comedy writing world is pretty much the top of the mountain. But um, that that also shows you like the, the kind of guy he was and the kind of relationship that we had. And boy, boy, do I miss the crap out of that. Not just from a comedy perspective, but just from a personal perspective. He was just such a great guy and such a mentor and, and such a sweetheart. I, I miss all of those things about him. Well, that is a pretty amazing phone call to get and a pretty amazing comment. And, um, you know, look, coming in second to Robert Smigel, like you said, is a pretty good position to be in. And uh, I'm, I'm bummed I'm not going to be able to go to Comic-Con this year at, um, and, and, and meet him because of all the people that are going to be there. Um, uh, oh, Smigel's going to be there this year? I feel like I remember seeing that uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog is making an appearance. Ah. Uh, at Comic-Con, gotcha. and of course, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Robert Smigel's <laughs> arm is the yeah. is the arm behind. It's not a Triumph. real dog. <laughs> so, to, you know, watching SNL as a kid, one of the things, and, and this is tough for, for anyone listening who's, you know, in their 20s, um, you know, when I was a kid watching SNL, if you didn't catch it at, you know, at 1130, uh, mm -hmm. You missed it, and that was it. And and you had to yep. basically rely on your friends to relay what happened because there, you might be able to catch it in the summer on a rerun if you were lucky. Otherwise, you would never get to see it because there was no internet, there was no YouTube, there was no clip shows, none of that stuff. Um, and so one of the things all of me and my friends used to stay up and, and, and try to catch was we were just hoping there would be an uh, either a, a phone with real audio or um, uh, the ambiguously gay duo, um, <laughs> which just made us laugh as as crazy, you know, twelve year olds. Uh, we just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Them driving around in this giant penis car, and the, the whole thing was just hilarious. And, oh, and so I knew who Robert Smigel was level. long before I even knew what he looked like. Um, right. Yep. Because uh, he kind of had this level name guy and, and a, a great guy. And uh, fortunately, I've I've had some limited interactions with him. And I eventually did get to tell him that Phil said 
he was the greatest writer with whom he had ever worked. And, and Robert was really touched by that. And Robert thought so much of Phil that when it came time to put together the best of Phil Hartman compilation, you mentioned those videos that you used to get back in the day. It was Robert who chose every single thing that went on there for Phil. So uh, that was another kind of cool thing about, about him. When, when Phil died, it was, um, you know, even as a young person, I, I just remember feeling totally shocked. And this is, you know, this is um, after, you know, Chris Farley's death and Kurt Cobain and lots of sort of shocking celebrity deaths. This, this to me was the most shocking. Um, how did you first learn about what happened? And, you know, just take us back to your, your initial state during that time. I mean, it was so traumatic. And as I set this up, I, I think you'll get a, a pretty good sense as to why. I mean, first of all, we're like five months removed from Farley's passing. Phil's dad had passed uh, just a couple of months before that. So, you know, he was obviously rattled by those two events in his life. But um, at the time, he and I were working together on a movie um, and I had completed the first 20 pages of it. And I had just FedExed it to him. Um, this was, I, I didn't have a fax machine at my house at the time. And um, I, I suppose I could have emailed it to him, but this is how we operated way back when for all the youngsters out there, he had a FedEx account. We just FedEx things to each other every day. So the night that he was murdered, he called me and he said, uh, Hey, I, I just got the pages and, I think this all looks great. And he gave me a couple of notes on it. And then as the conversation continued, he's like, what's wrong? And I said, I, I don't know, man. I, I just feel like I'm kind of at a crossroads in my career because here I was, I was still doing stuff with Phil and I, I, I continued to do various projects for and with him and would punch things up and stuff like that. And uh, I said, I don't know if I should be pursuing this radio thing or if I should continue down this path. And he kind of stopped me and he said, look, I'm not worried about you. You've got all the talent in the world. That's all going to take care of itself. What I want you to do is to get some perspective right now. Uh, you're a great guy. You've got a wonderful family, beautiful wife. Um, those are the things that matter. Look at me. I'm 49. And you probably think, oh, I wish that I had everything that, that Phil has. You know, I've got the beautiful wife. I've got the the two beautiful kids. And then all of a sudden he started laughing. I said, what happened? He said, oh, Bryn just flashed me, his wife. And uh, he said, but, you know, it, the journey, as I said before, the anticipation is the fun part. And he used to say that to my brother and myself. He's like, I know you envy me, but the truth is I envy you because it's all about the journey. And when you finally get to where you want to get to, you're always going to look back so fondly on that part of it. And the problem is that nobody ever enjoys it while it's going on. So he kind of wrapped up by saying, but look at me now with the beautiful wife and the two kids news radio just got picked up. It was kind of on the bubble at that point because um, they moved it around so much and it had a cult following, but it was never a huge ratings grabber for NBC. But he said, um, hey, we're leaving tomorrow to go to the beach house. He uh, he used to, I think it was Brian Wilson's beach house from the Beach Boys. He used to hang out there. He's like, you've got the number. 
if you have any questions or concerns, call me. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll get you the address there if you need to FedEx anything. And he's like, you know, every, everything's going to be okay. And I got off the phone just feeling so great about everything. Kind of like when I talked to him off the ledge about news radio, it just, it felt like this huge weight had been lifted from my shoulders. I'm in HJY the next day. Amy Hagen is on the air. I walk into the studio. She says, Hey, how's, uh, how's things going with Phil? I said, great. Just talked to him last night. And, you know, I told her what the conversation was and all this other stuff. And suddenly somebody came running into the studio white as a ghost and said, Brian, Eric Emerson's on the phone and he needs to talk to you. Now, Eric was somebody that I had gone to college with who was working in radio at the time. This girl who ran in, we had all been in college together. I walk into a hallway, I pick up a phone and it's Eric. And he said, Brian, I, I hate to be the one to have to tell you this. Phil Hartman is dead. And I said, what? He's like, I'm serious, man. It's on channel 10 right now. And I turned the TV on, it was in commercial. And I said to him, this isn't funny, dude. Um, He's like, I, I would never joke around about something like this. So I got off the phone and I walked back into the studio and there was Amy with my good friend, Jen Clark, holding the piece of AP copy, both looking white as ghosts and just unable to even say anything to me in that moment. And I thought, oh my God, this is true. And then I started hearing what the details were and your mind is just going a thousand miles an hour at that point. And I'm like, who, who could have done this to him? Cause I had no idea. I, I knew that he had been shot. And I also knew, and, and this was another kind of weird thing about Phil. Phil had so many hobbies and he was a master at pretty much all of them. But one of them was, and he was like kind of a West coast hippie type, but he had a huge collection of guns and he had purchased some, uh, or at least one for his wife, because he, as he explained to me, there's lots of times where I'm away for months at a time, uh, shooting a movie, you know, in some faraway place. And, it, it, you know, anybody who has any level of celebrity has some weirdo fans. And he said, I, I get worried about her being in the house with some of the people with which I've, I've dealt. And you remember what Letterman went through with that woman who kept showing up at his place in New Canaan, Connecticut. And uh, what a tragic uh, story that ended up being for her. She later like took her life. So when I heard that news, I immediately thought, Oh my God, somebody got in, uh, probably took one of his guns and, and murdered him and then probably murdered his wife as well. And then I started thinking like, Oh my God, I was, I was like one of the last people to speak with him. Are the police going to call me? And should I have picked up on something? You know, you, everything's just going a million miles an hour. So in the aftermath of discovering what had happened and hearing that it was his wife who had murdered him, left his dead body in the house with the two kids, went to a friend's house and then came back and then killed herself. The words are still echoing in my head of, look at me, I'm 49. I have everything. Uh, a beautiful wife, two kids, news radio just got picked up you're going to be okay. And, and I, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around those two things. And it messed me up for a good long time. And I've had a lot of therapy and a lot of time to process it. And ultimately the way that I work through it is a, how lucky was I to be pals and a collaborator 
with someone on that level for the six years that we had together. And, you know, I'm 53 now and every day that goes by, one of the first things I think is this is a day that Phil didn't get to experience. He didn't even get to 50 and it kind of breaks my heart a little bit, but I go back to that phone call and I remember what he said. I have everything I've ever wanted. And you know what? If you've got to go out early, um, that's not a bad headspace to be in. So that's how I've made it all okay in my head. Now, do I have my moments? Yeah, sure. Still, of course I do. But uh, I think if, if he had to go at any time, I'm glad he was as happy as he was. Brian, I really appreciate you sharing all this stuff because obviously I've been a huge fan, but um, I'm also a huge fan of the the guy that Phil was and learning about that side of him uh, has only made me love him and his work and all that stuff even more. So I think uh, you being willing to share all those stories and everything is is just such a gift to me and and to everyone listening. Um, But I want to turn the attention to you. Because you have a, uh, a new project you've been working on uh, that you're really excited about. And I'm really excited about since you told me about it, uh, which is a new play that you've written uh, that's going to be staged here uh, in the state of Rhode Island locally. So tell me about the play. What's it about? Um, and when is it going to be uh, uh, staged? And, and how can people see it? Well, the name of the play is The Butterfly Boys. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to plug it, Eric. Um, speaking of my mom, it's based on uh, a very profound experience that my family had to endure when we lost um, her to COVID at the height of the pandemic. And um, the way that this came about was my stepson was working at this particular theater, the Academy Players of Rhode Island in Providence, Um his name is Jonathan. He's very artistic. He's done a lot of set design. He's doing stuff for Trinity now and Brown University. I'm really, really proud of him. And uh, one day my wife said to me, Jonathan told me his dream is to one day write a play that he can design the set for. And that was the inspiration for this for me. I said, well, wouldn't it be kind of cool if I could write something and he could do the set design for it and we could kind of work on it together? Now I just need an idea. And I'd never written a play before, so I thought, and I like to challenge myself. I'm like, this this will be an interesting challenge to write something where there are no cuts or edits and having to think about the stage and, and not making it too complicated. So I was in the shower the next day and I just started thinking about everything that happened with my mom and how COVID really was a game changer and, and just such an historic moment in time. There have been plays about the AIDS epidemic. There have been plays about 9-11. And um, I I think it's good that they serve as a reminder and and also as an example of experiences that some people have had at times like that, that maybe not everyone experienced. And um, basically, my family wasn't in a great place when my mom got sick. My parents had reached an age where they were having a hard time taking care of themselves. But they didn't want to admit it or deal with it. And it it caused some friction um, amongst us. And uh, then all of a sudden my mom got sick and within a week she had passed. So uh, for people who didn't go through 
that experience of losing a loved one at that time. The difficulty of having to try to work through those issues while saying goodbye to my mom and trying to fix things with my father and who had COVID and trying to get a funeral together and could dad be there or not. And, uh, you know, when my mom passed, I was the only one there out of the entire family and I, I was behind glass and I, I couldn't hold her hand. And um, I, I really think that these are important things that, that people need to know. It's not just a play about COVID though. It's a play about family and it sounds like it's really, really heavy, but of course, when it's coming from somebody like me, we could call it a dramedy. There's, there was moments of humor throughout. And um, it was a, a really therapeutic thing for me. You know, I talked about what I had to do to get myself through the whole Phil thing. Um, I had a psychological mountain to climb with this situation as well. And to see it now finally all coming together uh, has been extremely rewarding. Uh, I'm working with a great group of people and in a full circle moment, Frank O'Donnell, he of the learning connection who essentially got me my start in comedy is playing the role of the character who represents my dad. So it, it's kind of neat to be able to, to bring that full circle. And, and Frank and I have remained friends through the decades. Uh, another Rhode Island comedy hall of famer, Ace Aceto is going to be playing the role of who is essentially my brother. Um, really, really excited about it. It's going to run from November 9th through the 12th. And if it continues to sell at the pace that it's selling, it might get an extension, but you can uh, just go to the Academy Players of Rhode Island website. There's a link to Eventbrite um, where you can purchase your tickets. And uh, I'd really love to see all of you there. I don't know that I've ever been more proud of anything that I've ever written. And um, it, the first read through, it was a roller coaster of everyone at the table laughing and crying. And uh, bring your Kleenex because I, I, I think you're going to need them. The, the one thing that terrifies me about this is my dad has not read the play. He knows nothing about it. He said, I want to walk in and see it in front of me for the first time live and completed. I don't know how tough that's going to be on him emotionally, but uh, it's it's certainly playing a factor in the, in the whole thing. And and another thing is too, they're shooting a behind the scenes documentary. Um, a very talented comedian and friend of mine, uh, Dan O'Brien, is behind that. Uh, which we're going to have a premiere of that once it's edited and put together. So follow me on socials. Uh, all the details are either up there now or are going to be up there. Well, Brian, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations on the play, and and thank you so much for joining me. It's been a really fun conversation, and uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, man. Can I put my pizza order in now, or should we do it once we've stopped recording? Let's do it after. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Sounds we good. We can talk about Thanks, all the Eric. details. It's been a blast, man. <laughs> Thanks. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.